on Word Matters, arcana of the lexicographical type. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. It's possible to use a dictionary day in and day out for years without knowing its code in full. On the printed dictionary page, do you know how the pair of words at the top of the page really gets to be there? How about those dots separating the entry words into parts? Neither is quite what it seems. I'll start us off. If you use a print dictionary, which I recommend that everyone do because there's something so nice about leafing through the pages of a dictionary, but in a print dictionary, you will find at the top of each entry page a set of words, and those words are intended to orient the reader so that the reader knows what vocabulary is covered on that particular page. We call them guide words. There's a set on the left side of the book and a set on the right side of the book, and it tells you all the different words that are on that page. So, for example, in my copy of Merriam-Webster's 11th Collegiate Dictionary that I have in front of me right now on page 478, on the left it says flaw, and then it says flexible. <laughs> so the first word on that page is flaw, the last word is flexible. On the facing page, the first word is flexibly, and the last word is flirt, except... When I look down at the very bottom of the page, the last word I see on the page is flirty, F-L-I-R-T-Y. It's entered as what we call an undefined run-on. Which alphabetically falls after, after the flirt. range that is indicated by the boldface at the top of the page. Yes. Now, what happens is that people, other very observant, loyal, wonderful, beloved dictionary users will also notice these kinds of things. And historically, it turns out that there are quite a few of these people because they write to us. And <laughs> no. they tell us that our guide words are wrong. No, nobody would do that. <laughs> well, most of the time, Ammon, they're being helpful because they know that we want to have these things correct. And we do, indeed. In fact, we are very fastidious about our guide words. But this is not a mistake. Because if you turn the page and go to page 480, did you hear that? I turned the page. The word at the top of page 480 is also flirt. It is the noun homograph this time. And so if we had made flirty be the guide word on page 479, it would not have been correct at all to have the first word on page 480 be the homograph flirt, because that means that the guide word on 480 would come before the guide word on 479. Now, all of this is actually laid out in the front matter of the dictionary. So if you really are concerned about these sorts of things, the dictionary does explain it all for you. And these are rules that in the editorial department at Merriam-Webster, we are paying attention to these things when we actually put the dictionary together. But they're not always instinctively clear. It actually, it seems superficially easy to understand that the guide words represent the alphabetical range of the page. The first guide word being the first alphabetically appearing word in boldface on that page, and the second guide word being the last boldface term printed alphabetically. But, of course, there are exceptions, and that's what the front matter explores, a couple of these exceptions. 
for common sense and also for expediency, to be honest, is one of the words. For example, this flirty, this entry flirty is an undefined run-on, which means it is run-on. It is an entry that has no definition but is appended to the verb entry. And then there happens to be a page turn before you get to the noun entry, which means that the alphabetical range of the following page really does start with flirt without the Y. That's right. But in general, the guide words are as they seem. They just do represent the alphabetical range. And in most cases, there is no issue like the one that we've just addressed here. (laughs) It's actually very clear. The first one is the first word and the last one is the last word. I think it's fascinating that people assume an alphabetized structure to the dictionary. And for the most part, it is. But there are definitely cases in which there are individual words, which seemingly are out of that order, but they are hewing to some kind of structure. Like, I mean, if you had the word egregious, for instance, and then if egregiousness as quality of being egregious is stuck under egregious, then egregiousness is going to come before egregiously. That's right. Uh, So it's out of order, except that it's in a different kind of order than maybe people are expecting. It would be very difficult to make it entirely 100% alphabetized. Right. right. And there's another example that to me, possibly more common than the flirt flirty example, because the fact is flirt is an entry that is in effect spread over two pages because you have a flirt verb on one page, flirt noun on the following page, and the derivative flirty of the verb happens to be linked to the verb entry and therefore is alphabetically after (laughs) the next entry. Another example, and I think one that occurs more frequently in the book, is one that we find at page 661, IQ to ironness. So ironness, meaning the quality of the metal iron, is alphabetically placed as the final word on this page. However, it occurs in boldface a little bit above the midpoint of the second column. In other words, it's far from the last word that appears on the page physically. The last word on the page physically is ironmongery, which is obviously a word that starts with an M after the iron, right? I-R-O-N-M, ironmongery. But ironness is that undefined run-on, the word that is run-on at the entry for iron itself. And so that's why, even though it appears, whatever, five inches above ironmongery, it alphabetically expresses the entire range of this page of the dictionary. And that is fairly tricky because a lot of people can see that ironmongery is the last word, and they'll write us into again, correct us. In the old days when we had that correspondence, I used to see letters almost every month going out to explain carefully that no, in fact, ironmongery is followed by ironness in an alphabetical range that expresses everything that can be found on this one printed page. Yes. And sometimes I think people romanticize the idea of creating dictionaries. I think that it's all just ruminating on the meaning of words and coming up with definitions. And that is the fun part. But some of it can be stultifyingly boring or fascinating if this is your kind of thing. Well, the thing is, sometimes we have to keep in mind that these guide words are printed in bold at the very top of the page, which means that, yes, they're utilitarian, they're there for a purpose, but they are also extremely exposed. They're easy to see, and they may, in some sense, draw attention to themselves in ways that words embedded in the text of the dictionary do not. That's right. Which reminds me, Peter, of my favorite guide word story, which I think I may have told on this podcast before, but if you have a guide word story, you have to bring (laughs) it out when the occasion calls for it. 
a famous story about a politician is, is Spiro Agnew, who was formerly vice president under Nixon, who was known for these literative phrases, nattering nabobs of negativism, <laughs> the pusillanimous pussyfooters, the vicars of vacillation. And most, if not all of these, were supposedly written for him in speeches by William Sapphire, the famous and much beloved language columnist for the New York Times for many, many decades. And somebody told me a story about this one time, which seemed like it checked out. These speeches were all written in the late 60s, early 70s. And somebody pointed out to me one time that he had a copy of Barron's Vocabulary Builder from 1964, which was just a list of fancy words you could learn to make your vocabulary look good. And he said, if you look at the guide words, page 137 or whatever it was, it went from nabob to nattering. <laughs> and you flip forward a couple of pages and it goes from pusillanimous to pussyfooter. And these, maybe it's a coincidence, but the guide words happen to just perfectly match the alliterative phrases that William Sapphire wrote for Agnew. It's nice to know that they might have some kind of long-term effect on the language. <laughs> that is such a great story. Guide words guided in this case, yes. more so than we think that they usually do. Yes, indeed. This is the case of these guide words. They really made it big. But they end up having a prominent place, an unusually prominent place on a printed page, on a printed dictionary page. And that does mean that for dictionary publishers, dictionary producers, dictionary editors, some care has to be taken. And although there's no official policy, it's clear at times that some entries have been gently nudged either in one direction or another so that the headword that the entry represents is no longer the first or the last alphabetical headword on a given page. That's right. We would never let a dictionary go to print with the F word as one of its guide words, <laughs> for, example. for example, even though so many people are looking that word up. We would never let that be a guide word. Instead, we would add an, an example sentence or we would put in an illustration. We would do something to make the page fall differently. In these examples, it's important to remind people that these are typeset books. It was a lengthy process of writing, editing, copy editing, and then typesetting, proofreading, <laughs> copy editing again. And often the typesetting stage is when you would see how the entries actually fell in terms of pagination. And so that was when you might add an illustration, for example. And by illustration, I mean an engraving or a drawing, or you might add what we call a verbal illustration, an example sentence, or maybe two to add some length or remove one. Anyway, you can fiddle with the typesetting a little bit for the pagination to fall in a more, let's just say, felicitous way. But there are other things to worry about, which is that the prominence of these guide terms that are boldface and sitting at the top of the page also means that it's very obvious if an error has been made, for example, and not an offensive word. But I remember early in my time at Merriam-Webster, a new edition of one of our paperbacks came out. And what would happen in the office is everyone would get a copy of the new book. So we had the full line of books at our desks. And it was given to me, and I just kind of thumbed through it. And I came to the entry in the C's, and the guide word was coffee house, but it was spelled with only a single E after the F's. So it read as Kof house. I wasn't trying to be smart or funny or anything, but I just said to the production designer, is that correct? Of course, the entry had two E's. The poor person, I could see them turn green. There's so much care that goes into these, and I'm sure in the very next printing it was corrected, of course. But it's the kind of error that might jump out at you. We do proofread these things multiple times. That is the kind of error, that is the kind of typo that is pretty devastating oh. at that point in the process. And it's gone through so many hands. It's not that it's somebody's fault. It's just that how did it happen? <laughs> listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. 
We'll be right back with more Deep Dictionary Nerdery. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Amon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w dot com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. We're heading into more arcana. Things are getting typographical. The guide words are the words that are at the very top of each page of the dictionary, but each entry on the dictionary has a head word that is the word that is being defined, and the head word has got dots placed amongst its letters. And many people think improperly that those represent the syllabic breaks of a word. That's right. I assumed before I started working at Merriam-Webster that those were syllabification marks that they would tell you where to break the word into syllables, but they are not. The syllable breaks are shown in the pronunciation key that immediately follows the head word. There are syllable marks there, but those dots in the head word tell you what, Peter? Well, it's something else, and it has to do, again, with publishing conventions. These are the line break conventions. This is where you would hyphenate if you were typesetting this word and it came to the end of a line and you needed more space. This tells you where it's appropriate to place a hyphen if you have to break the word. They're different from the actual syllabic breaks because syllables are phonetic, which is why we present them as hyphens within the phonetic transcription of the word. So they're there, they're given, and there's no reason to duplicate that. The center dots, the end line breaks, are different for a lot of reasons. One obvious thing is that in typesetting, there's the phenomenon of the orphan. If you have a word like area or something, you don't put a hyphen after the A. You bring the word down a line. You don't strand a single letter. You don't you strand a single letter. You never leave a letter alone on a line. And there are conventions that are easy to notice if you think of them. As you look at a page, I'm looking at this section of the letter I here, and I can see, for example, that we do not provide the center dots for words that are compound terms where the term itself has a dictionary entry somewhere else. So, for example, iron curtain has no center dots whatsoever because you can look up curtain and see where it would fall. But you can see that there is one for, for Iron example, monger. Iron monger. Yes, there is. And often these are kind of a quick, easy way to understand these is often they break down where the words themselves separate if they are, like ironmonger, compound words. Now, the thing about these division dots is that we don't really use them anymore. Well, because of word <laughs> processing. Kind of, one of the things that I remember from the history of Miriam is that a huge amount of time and effort has gone into dictionary production 
to make things smaller so that you can fit more information in the book. So much so that when we were doing Webster's Third International Dictionary, they came up with using, I think, what was it, the tilde rather than use the word in citations? Because Mm -hmm. every time you take out one word, you take out one word from every citation, you're saving dozens, scores of pages of text, (laughs) and you can fit so much more. And yet, here's this totally outdated convention that it's fairly safe to say nobody is going to our dictionary to say, where do I put the line break on this word? And yet we're still giving it all this real estate. Well, I wonder if that will be changing in the future. Right. I expect that it would. That is not my decision to make, but it'll be interesting right. to see going forward. The fact is that our word processing programs make these choices for us. We as individual writers no longer need to think about where an appropriate place to put a hyphen is. Unless we're dealing with a compound word. So we still do very much care about whether you're going to hyphenate whistleblower or not. Both are fine, by the way. Those kinds of hyphens people still have to give consideration to. Those are matters of usage and style that are shifting constantly and that we do still very much want to report on. But where the hyphen goes, if you want to split the word dictionary to fit it on a page, nobody has to think about that anymore. Well, some people do, which is to say professional typesetters. There are still people who work in the publishing industry who have always referred to our dictionary or someone else's dictionary for this purpose. That's a very good point, Peter. I don't mean to leave out the professional typesetters. My point is, where do they go if they don't get this information in a dictionary entry? It's a job that was taken in some ways more seriously in the past because typesetting was something that happened at many different levels. You might have a school newspaper, for example, that was done by students or amateurs, but then it would go all the way up to the New York Times. So the fact is there were more typesetters because of technology of print. This was one of the sort of mechanical necessities that standards were required. And little things that you don't think about, like, for example, it's mentioned in the preface to Webster's Third, to the Unabridged Dictionary, a couple of examples, and they give examples of typesetting conventions and then sort of immediately show the counterexample that even though a syllable for a word like cardiovascular, but again, you have to keep in mind that that word is never split at cardi-ovascular. You would keep the cardio because of its etymological connection to one idea, one lexical unit and the vascular to a different one. So you kind of respect those. And then there are others where phonetics have to do with it. For example, they give the example for the word cyclic, C-Y-C-L-I-C, but they give the pronunciation cyclic as an alternative. And they say, well, the problem with that is that if it were cyclic, it would be broken after the Y, C-Y hyphen. But if it were cyclic, it would be broken after the C, C-Y-C hyphen. So they start getting into the nitty gritty of phonetics. And you realize that If you don't have a guide for the center dots, you may find yourself wasting a lot of time wondering, where do I put this hyphen? Where does it go? If you don't mind, a few sentences of this lovely text, which is from 1961. It's an essay in the style of the time on this subject. It's sort of charming. The centered periods in boldface main entries indicate places at which a hyphen may be put as the last character in a line of print or writing when the rest of the word must be put at the beginning of the following line. We have made an effort to insert the periods only at places where hyphens would actually be used by publishing houses whose publications show a conscientious regard for end-of-line divisions. Such publishers probably never divide the word oleo between the e and the o. If there is room for a hyphen, there is room for the o. They avoid dividing between the o and the l except in extremely narrow measure. 
as when an illustration narrows a column. So they give this kind of example and rationale for the utility of these center dots. Yes. And also they show that, again, even in this, the dictionary is being descriptive. It is describing right. what carefully run publishing houses do as their practices. Another example they give that I think is really charming is when you have to break a term that is itself hyphenated, such as self-centered. So self-centered is spelled with a hyphen between the self and the centered. And they point out that you would divide it after the N in centered. Because the hyphen is used at the end of a line is identical with the hyphen that occurs between the F and the C of a word like self-centered, many find objectionable the breaking of such a word at the end of a line at any point other than the hyphen. But as they point out, of course, you can break it because the idea has to be all of one, self-centered. So if you see the self-hyphen, C-E-N hyphen, you can read that quite comfortably. Now, Merriam-Webster's house sure. style is to put a double hyphen right. that actually tilts up. If you are breaking a word like self-centered, if it breaks <laughs> at the right. end of a line, you put S-E-L-F, and then you put this kind of tilting up double hyphen, almost like an angled equal sign, and then you put the word centered on the next line. That tells you that the word that has been split has a hyphen in it at that point, even when it is on a single line. And it does make it easier to read because you recognize, okay, this is an intentional break of a single lexical unit. Unless you think about it too much and then it's all incredibly <laughs> distracting. <laughs> Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Ammon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.